Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name is Neil Selwyn and in this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, I'm talking with Steve Roberts. Steve is an Associate Professor at Monash's School of Social Science, where he carries out a range of work in the sociology of youth and social policy. Steve's recent work has focused on the changing nature of men and masculinity, often touching on issues relating to education and educational institutions. So I first got Steve to give us a potted overview of his recent areas of interest. My work is mostly centred around young people and masculinity, so young men and masculinity, I guess. Um, and as that applies to a whole multitude of contexts. So I'm interested in sexting, alcohol, uh, all the things that people are interested in, I guess. All the things young men yeah, are interested yeah. in, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's it. Um, masculinity, is it changing? Is it not changing? What's changing? What isn't? What um, problems that, and solutions that might produce for power and the way we um, understand and can try and produce gender equality, I guess. Mm, so, I mean, masculinity is suddenly a big thing. Mm. You hear about toxic masculinity, me too, Gamergate, incels. I mean, young men are not getting the good press. No, I think that's probably fair, but um, also we have to be careful about that kind of language as well because the idea that um, young men are getting a bit of a beating is used as part of the backlash of those groups you just described like incels alt-right that kind of thing uh you know jordan peterson being the, the prime example mm. saying that young men are getting a bit of a bashing um but having young men be under scrutiny in some way isn't necessarily a bad thing i no, think no. we need to look at issues of power and um masculinity is a, is a hot topic but it's in a topic in sociology for 34 years yeah so, yeah so i was going to say how does your work speak back to those discourses i mean how does research actually kind of push back yeah so i think probably relatively uniquely and I might even get a bit of a kicking from some researchers for saying this kind of stuff I, I try and situate my work in a youth cultures and sorry youth studies youth sociology youth cultures tradition as being about trying to um, balance generosity and critique mm. and so I'm not really invested in this idea of, uh, of man bashing or, or whatever we might want to call it and it's not about um, unduly scrutinizing masculinity but certainly thinking about the damage that it can do to men and to women and the ways that we might make the world better. And one of the things that I've done actually is try to look at positive enactments of masculinity and to think about whether they can be exemplars for how we can speak back to those those issues, yeah, yeah. you know, the incels, the alt-right and, and all that kind of stuff. I love this idea of generosity yeah. in research. I mean, how does that go down academically? I think it's... Um, it's a new kind of language that uh, me and a colleague of mine, Carla Elliott, we've been we've been working with and trying to publish because often um, it comes from the like feminist understanding that we should be generous and respectful of, of women's stories, and we're mm. trying to apply some of that stuff to how we how we think and talk about men as as research participants. So, I think it's. Um, it's working its way through and we recognise that for uh, 20 years or so of intersectional analyses tell us that different men have different levels of power and so on. So it, it's part of that whole vibe that we need to understand that not everyone has the same access to, to power. And, you know, as researchers, we probably have more power than a lot of the people we research. And in, in fact, recently someone was talking to me about even trying to apply generosity to some accounts of the, of what looked like hard right you know, really super masculinist, problematic guys yeah, who yeah. pro-Brexit, pro-Trump and, and actually quite negative, but trying to understand those those people. And I think like some some researchers do that really well, even in, in the US as well. Um, Ali Hochschild's done that really well. Mm. Michael Kimmel, if I'm, if I'm allowed to say his name anymore. 
Um, uh, he did this book about angry white men. So I think there's like there's an understanding we use that language, but um, also increasingly people understand that those people, those men, do have grievances, and we should try and understand them, not mm. just kind of demonise so them. So a kind of consideratory approach to researching what we previously may have been quite critical about. Yeah, I think it, I think it doesn't lose its criticality. I think one of the one of the things I really remember, even as a PhD student, I remember being really quite shocked by youth sociology doing it's actually a brilliant job but it did a brilliant job of showing what was really terrible about the world yeah and i think um that's probably only part of the sociological enterprise really it's also trying to shed some hope as well and look for pockets of resistance and um, think about how we can promote social change rather than just point to problems all the yeah, time yeah absolutely now i'm quite interested contemporary youth studies is taking a bit of a digital turn so i'm interested in terms of what's new about the digital lives that young men are leading the digital world is the world is the social world so it's yeah. it's unavoidable that young people engage with um with digital life whether that's you know having their body monitored through through fitbits or sexting and dating apps um all, all kinds of different things um using twitter to uh, to, to bombard people with different opinions, um, and to uh, and and the, you know the whole alt right movement came came about online, and um, Reddit as this new this mm. new platform for for lots of different voices. Um, so I think there's lots of different mediums through which young people can engage with the world, and it's that the old adage about the world being kind of um, smaller now that like everyone everyone's accessible. Uh, Globalisation has been achieved through digital um, means. So I think like stuff, lots of stuff's changed, but I'm also interested in stuff that's stayed the same as Absolutely, well. Yeah. You know? um, so I'm definitely into thinking about the ways that people theorize the digital world and digital society, I guess. But yeah, I'm kind of mostly interested in what young people are doing and just how different it is. And if I can just think of one example quickly, and it's not even my own research, but one thing that's really striking to me is that there's this feeling that young people, like a common perception that young people have loads of sex and they yeah. probably have loads of sexual partners, especially with the advent of Tinder and, and these kind of dating apps and hookup culture and stuff. But actually the, the survey data shows us that young people don't have any more sexual partners than 20 or 30 years ago. So I think this is what I'm interested in. Yeah, what stays the same, what changes and whether these new platforms and digital technologies do give affordances for new kind of new ways of being young mm. or if it's just kind of the same in some ways as well. So you're kind of hinting we need to hold on to kind of analogue methods and analogue <laughs> research to yeah. kind of, un yeah, it's just a really interesting kind of juxtaposition. Yeah, I don't, I definitely don't fully buy into, I think it was Les Back who talked about dead sociology. Yeah, you know? live methods. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. So I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced by that, um, the complete disbanding of analog methods necessarily, um, but just recognising that the digital is an important part of everyday life. Yeah, yeah. Now, so broadening things out a little, I mean, your work is located primarily, as you say, within youth sociology, youth studies, social policy. Mm. So how do those areas see education research or see education as a topic? I mean, what are the educational issues that your sorts of the fields that you move in? What are, what are they interested in? I think um, like education is central to all of this. And, and for me, long, long has been. I know sometimes we think about um, sociology of education and youth studies as being totally different beasts. And mm. I think that's definitely more so the case in Australia, where I think the UK has a longer tradition of um, kind of like more education as part of the transition to adulthood whereas i think the youth sociology group in australia tends to be more youth cultures focused most of the time or thinking about higher education and graduate destinations and yeah, so on yeah. so i think there's some massive overlaps there there's, there's loads of really interesting people who have worked with over the years in the uk who definitely take young people's experiences of school as evidence of or a, a kind of a basis of understanding youth cultures as well and i think that's what's really integral here that we we don't forget that 
cultures are played out in, in school settings and one, pe- uh, one person's educational credentials give them the capacity for work, but also might say something about or have an influence on the kind of cultural circles that they mix in as well. So the, the overlaps are massive as far as I'm concerned. And, and in particular with young men and your interest in young men and masculinity, I mean, what is your field? What can they tell us about young men and education? Well, I think uh, just to repeat things that a lot of the education researchers know and the education community, of course, know is that there is, there is an issue around declining um, numbers of uh, young men engaging in university level study. So does, so does that. But I think what my area of study brings to this is an understanding of the way that masculinity works. And, and again, speaking back to some of those kind of alt-right incel type ideas is that with an erosion of the traditional privileges of, of masculinity and the, the rise of women's participation in, in higher education. These two things kind of have worked together to potentially erode a sense of what it is to be a man in the world. And I mm. think that so part of the rejection of um, higher education is in part this kind of like harking back to what it was to be a real man and a rejection of whatever might be seen as, as feminine. In part, I don't think it's quite that simple. But And I know social scientists never have solutions to anything. But I mean, <laughs> what do we do? I and mean, that's a big problem. Yeah. As I mentioned before, one of the things that I'm keen to do is, is to look for positive examples. And I, I, I really would call on sociologists and social researchers to demonstrate where positive practice exists or where positive experience exists. So when we know, like the the research that talks about young working class men's engagement with higher education, often it's about dropout, right? What I'd be more keen to understand is, and and some of this stuff does emerge, it's a great book by Nicola Ingram in the UK, talking about young working class boys, successful experience of selective schools, you know, Um, and that's that's not usually what we've looked at. We looked at why is it a problem? How does structure get in the way? How how does power work in these situations to to cause problems for people? But I think if we can highlight some of the um, more positive experiences, yeah, we at least give hope to to start finding solutions. You don't find solutions by just looking at the problem and saying, here's another problem, here's another problem. So I'm really interested in your use of theory. So how are you theorising all the work that you do? And also what can education research learn from the approaches that you've been drawing on? I'm kind of theoretically eclectic, actually. Mm. Um, I'm mostly these days into into my Borgesian social theory, but um, I've you know, I've used Beck and I've been very critical of Beck and the use of Beck in, in youth studies as, as presenting too much of a, a world in which um, uh, social characteristics are no longer so relevant. And I've been I've been hypercritical of that and been criticised for being critical as well. Um, but I think Borgia is really important to blend with masculinities. And I think that the, the blend of Borgia with uh, masculinities theory is could be a good example for what uh, education researchers can do. So mm. I think um, some people are like pure Borgiaisians, I guess, but the way I use social theory is to try and understand different parts of different groups' social lives. So I think one holistic theory, you know, like a kind of grand narrative or grand idea doesn't work, but a toolbox approach, thinking about the way that different elements of different theories can help explain uh, to deliver a fuller understanding of young people's lives is what what I'm going for. So I'm trying to blend um, Borgiaisian social theory with hegemonic masculinity theory and this other new, slightly more controversial theory called inclusive masculinity theory. Um, and to use Borgia as this kind of um, a way of understanding the actor in mm. what in what otherwise these other theories kind of give us a sense of a, a typical kind of sociological analysis of the way that power works or the way that structures work. But I'm trying to think about, yeah, like drawing on, on Borgia's idea of habitus and how uh, the actor is made up of all these different influences and dispositions and how they come to inform and be informed by masculinist discourses and so on. And so inclusive masculinity. Yeah. It's controversial, but in, in my mind, again, it's one of those things that shouldn't be controversial because what it tries to do actually is highlight that 
um, there's been an overarching decline in homophobia. And where this research emerges from is in schools. Uh, And it's controversial because we know that homophobia does still exist in schools, of course, and it's really terrible and it's it's, it's shocking for, for kids to experience. And lots of teachers have experienced it and seen it. Um, but the rate at which it occurs, um, we think, is probably declined. And, the, and if you look at the the, this, the people that um, talk about this theory and design this theory, they look at the trends over time. And the trends over time seem to be a much greater acceptance. And again, I think what they're trying to do, and this is where I think my work builds into and off of theirs, is try and highlight those positive trends. So where it was, um, in, in my most recent book, I had this, this phrase where I talked about not to minimize the harms, but marginalize those who are being harmful. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so, for example, and I think this is really important for schools and researchers in education, that if we constantly create um, or document a climate of fear, then it, it becomes self-perpetuating. And I think there's a, there's a possibility, and I'm not saying this is about controversy, of course, or, or um, debate and concern, but there's a possibility to say, you know, if it's say that it's fifteen percent of boys are, are doing a lot, all the damage, if we can highlight that they're the problem, and that the the eighty five percent of people, or even fifty percent of people, have pro LGBT views or are much more inclusive than the generations past, then we can see that change as being productive, yeah, yeah. rather than just focusing on that's negative. And I, you know, I'm, I want to be very careful and say that that's not about dismissing the harms that are, that are um, experienced by young people. But it's a more balanced, rounded picture. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Social scientists like to look for negative examples and to be critical i know we look for problems but yeah you're right we can have a much more hopeful social science fingers crossed just to finish with i mean this is called meet the education researcher you're not necessarily an educational researcher but i mean if i gave you a million dollars to do an education-based project of your dreams i mean what sort of thing would you look for i've done i've done a fair bit in education spaces actually so i think it's fair to say i'm I'm a little bit of an education researcher yeah i think um i think what i'm most interested in in the education space base at the moment would be around graduate transitions. Right. Um, and I think there is some work to do about the, the kind of medium term outside of um, the university setting. So we know that uh, university degrees um, aren't what they used to be in terms of delivering uh, labor market outcomes. You can't just get a degree and know you're going to get a job out there because the world is a, the economy is a precarious one. What I'm interested in is the relationship between education and what people can learn in the education space and how that serves them three to five years down the line, yeah. right? Not just that kind of like, oh, you got a job straight away, but what happens in the, th- in the two or three years afterwards? Um, there's, there's, again, there's, there's good research coming out of the UK that shows that there's, there remains a kind of class penalty in wages, even at the even if you access the top jobs. So if you're from a working class background, you go into the top job, you're still likely to get uh, less pay than someone who is middle class and accesses the, those same top level of jobs, lawyers, doctors, whatever. So, yeah, I'd be interested in the relationship between education and those disparities that happen over three to five years outside. And you're British. That's so right. When I first came to Australia, I was told there's no such thing as class in Australia. <laughs> you talk about working class, middle class disparities. How does that play out in an Australian context as opposed yeah, to a UK one? I think um, I was quite shocked, actually. Like I had, a, I had a rough idea that people weren't necessarily into class and it's the land of the fair go and all that yeah, kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. Um, and if I'm honest, I, I, I see a slightly more salubrious working class here. I mean, you definitely see what some some people describe as an underclass who are more disconnected as well. But the, the kind of average working class looks different in my kind of very anecdotal um, ethnographic view of it, I suppose. But um, yeah, class doesn't isn't a language that Australians are, are keen on. Um, no. I'd be I'd be more keen on people understanding class inequalities. And even if you just want to talk in the language of inequality and um, the way that certain social characteristics prevent or facilitate upward or downward mobility, then I think it's important um, 
that we know that in Australia as well that uh, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer on average. Yeah, yeah. So I think class is an important part of the conversation. It's just not had. It's part of a very powerful political discourse that's been around since settler times, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. So bringing class back to bear. Well, excellent. Thanks very much for taking the time to talk. It's been yeah, great no to hear about your work. Good luck. Thank you.